Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Martha Nussbaum. Her new book is titled Anger and Forgiveness, Resentment, Generosity, Justice. It's published by Oxford University Press. Nussbaum is Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor and Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. Anger is among the most familiar phenomena in our moral repertoire. It's common to think that anger is an appropriate and sometimes even required emotional response to wrongdoing and injustice. In fact, our day-to-day lives are saturated with inducements not only to become angry, but to adopt the idea that anger is morally righteous. At the same time, however, we're familiar with the ways in which anger can go morally wrong. Anger is said to eat away at us. It can render us morally blind. So one might wonder, what exactly is the point of anger? In Anger and Forgiveness, Martha Nussbaum argues that, in its most familiar forms, anger is not only pointless, but morally confused and pernicious. She advocates replacing anger with forms of generosity and kindness and justice. Her critique of anger is developed across the spectrum of human experience, from intimate relationships to mostly anonymous and interpersonal relations, and ultimately to the political. There's a lot to talk about, so let's turn to the interview. Hello, Martha Nussbaum. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. It's very hot here in Chicago, but I'm air-conditioned inside. So. <laughs> well, it's very hot in Nashville, too. Oh, and I'm glad to be air-conditioned as well. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Philosophy, Martha. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you, listeners, for checking out our podcast. My guest, as I've just mentioned, is Martha Nussbaum of the University of Chicago. We'll be talking about her new book, which is titled Anger and Forgiveness, Resentment, Generosity, Justice. The book is fantastic and challenging, um, and I highly recommend it. Uh, Martha argues, among other things, that despite our strong individual tendencies to anger and also despite uh, various cultural norms and triggers that seem to valorize anger in certain contexts, Anger is actually morally confused and, in most cases, morally pernicious. There's a lot uh, to talk about uh, about these topics, and uh, we will get into that in a minute. But first, why don't we begin uh, where we usually do, which is with the author. Martha, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I think I'll just, um, I mean, I'm so old that there would it would go on forever if I really told a story <laughs> about my whole career. But I guess... What's useful to say is that I began 
as a scholar of ancient Greek philosophy, because that does come into the book, and I think that it does in, inspire a lot of what I do. And I turned to Greek philosophy largely because I thought there was so much insight into the emotions there. And that was one thing that from the very beginning of my career I focused on. Now, as time went on, I also got much more interested in political philosophy. And the two arms of my career really are those two work on the emotions, what are they like, what role do they play in human life, what role should they play, and then the uh, other arm is normative political philosophy. What is a just society? What kind of institutions does it have? How does it try to promote a kind of human flourishing where, once again, I connect it back to Aristotelian ideas of capability and human flourishing. So, of course, the two are connected because I also think that emotions play a role in political society. And my previous book before this was called Political Emotions. So this particular book then has a long history because it develops out of my earlier work on the nature of the emotions, but also on my thought about criminal justice, revolutionary justice, my interest in feminism, my interest in race. And so it also represents a big change of view. Now, in fact, in my life, I've always been very skeptical of anger. I'm not prone to anger, as I record in the book. The one place where I am very testy is when I fly on airlines and I encounter irritating strangers. But Oddly enough, with the people I love and care for, I really am not an angry person. And um, sometimes I think that's a very good thing. But then there are other times in my career where people will say to me, oh, well, but to have a movement for revolutionary justice, you need anger. So I was actually pressured by other feminists to put justified anger onto my capabilities list. And, um, you know, I thought, well, it's not me, but if other people think it's important, then I shouldn't just put my own personal predilections on my list, but I should make it represent other people. And then in this writing this book, which initially was a series of lectures that I gave in Oxford, I just sat and sat and thought about anger. And I came to the conclusion that my initial gut instinct had been correct and the ideas that I was getting from other people had been incorrect. And so I ended up feeling that um, it was was wrong to think that anger is a part of the human capabilities that a good society should foster. Unfortunately, that list is kind of fixed by now, and I can't really take it off the list. But anyway, so I, it represents a major change of view about my political norms, and we can get into that later. But I think it's probably just, just time to plunge in and talk about the book. That sounds great. Why don't we pick up uh, where you actually um, uh, began with one of the two arms of your career, and the book, I think very nicely, is another example of how um, your concern with the emotions and with what's inside human beings uh, connects up with um, our social life. And I want to ask a question, so just getting into a little bit more of the specifics, because the book begins with a, uh, a very nice discussion of Aeschylus. Can you tell us how that discussion sort of sets up the topic or the theme in the book? Sure. Uh, well, the listeners may not be that familiar with Aeschylus's Oristia. I thought about it largely because we had had a conference at the law school where we actually put on extracts from that, that, that trilogy, and I actually was cast in the role of Clytemnestra, of course, the arch criminal, but also right. the arch seeker of vengeance. And so I had investigated those emotions as an actress. <laughs> I used to be an actress for a while. And so I was thinking about this. Now, what this trilogy is actually about the foundation of a politically decent society out of a more archaic society based on family and based on blood revenge. So what happens is that Clytemnestra's daughter is killed by her husband, 
and the husband does uh, Agamemnon does some other bad things like bringing back a prostitute from the war and so on. So she arranges to have to murder him, and then of course uh, vengeance has to follow. So her child Orestes has to take on the obligation of murdering her and murdering her lover Aegisthus, and it just goes on and on through the generations, and you kind of feel it would never stop, except that then Athens comes on the scene. And it, so it's like a fast forward into 5th century contemporary Athens where the goddess Athena says, well, wait a minute, I've got law courts and I've got the rule of law and I've got a jury here of citizens chosen by lottery and they're going to hear the case of Orestes and resolve it once for all. And so what's really interesting is how East Coast is trying to represent to his audience the fact that the rule of law makes a very fundamental transformation in blood vengeance. It has to sideline it, and it has to say, no, Now, from now on, we're going to settle crime in a calm and rational way by weighing evidence and by, by appealing to principles of law. Now, that's all pretty familiar stuff when people write about the play, but what I wanted to emphasize is that the Furies, the ancient goddesses of vengeance, who are characters in this last part of the play, and they, they kind of get defeated, but they get kept in an underground locker where Athena says, you know, you're going to stay there. But they have to change, even to be kept in the underground locker, because she says, you've got to adopt a new range of sentiments. You have to listen to persuasion, and you have to basically give up the spirit of vengeance. So they even change their name. They're no longer the Furies, but they're now called the Kindly Ones, the Eumenides. <laughs> so what she's saying is that in a decent society, we can't do things by retributivism anymore. Blood for blood, pain for pain. We have to have a new spirit, and that new spirit interestingly enough, is totally forward-looking. The question we have to ask is how to promote the welfare of the whole society. Now, in fact, the idea that punishment should not be retributive, but it should be deterrent and should look forward, was not the invention of the utilitarians in the 19th century. It was actually the view of all the major Greek philosophers, including Aeschylus, including Socrates, including Plato, including Seneca, and so on. They all thought that retributivism was crude and archaic and that we should replace it by a forward-looking question that is how, when we punish people, as no doubt we will, should we promote the welfare of the whole society. So it's that process <clears throat> that we see in the play. And it's that turn from the retributive to the welfare forward-looking that I start out with in the book. And then I ask, well, wait a minute. So what's really wrong with retributive anger? Why, why do we need to replace it? As I, I agree with the goddess Athena that we should. So that's where the book starts. Wonderful. Let me ask, so take a step back because um, one of the things that I really like about the book and, and, and your work in general is how well informed and, and how often you are reminding your readers how much the classics matter uh, or how much classical thought still uh, matters. Um, can you maybe say a little bit about what you think the value is of the classical figures you keep returning to, including perhaps especially Aristotle, but also the Stoics? Well, first of all, I want to make a verbal point. I do not think one should use the word classics if what one means is Greek and Roman ancient literature. Uh, I think one should say the Greek and Roman classics, because they're also Indian classics. They're also Chinese classics. And, you know, every department of philosophy these days is a department of Western philosophy. But I think we should remind ourselves of that narrowness. And we should remind ourselves that we have a lot to learn from other cultures. So when my colleagues say, now we're going to have a search in ancient philosophy, I think, no, it's ancient Greek and Roman philosophy that you mean, because you know very well that if someone applied who worked on Sanskrit, you would not uh, regard that person as a suitable candidate. So I'm, you know, I'm a big friend of India. I do a lot of work in India. So I want to make that point clear. Now, um, that said, I myself am trained in the Greek classics, and those are the ones I know. It also happens that worldwide, those figures, and I would say more the, the tragedians than the philosophers, 
are pretty familiar. So, you know, I can make a point better appealing to Aeschylus than I could appealing to Rabindranath Tagore, whom I also love, the great Indian philosopher and winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. But, you know, I wish the world were more pluralistic and I try to make it more pluralistic in my teaching. I myself um, do find that I derived a lot of insight from the ancient Greek classics. And um, so sometimes when I start thinking about a problem, I do look at those figures and I, I learn from them. And I think in the study of the emotions in particular, they make a big contribution to philosophical thought today. Because... Somehow the Western tradition got derailed around the 18th century and it got um, fascinated with the idea that emotions are simple feelings that have no, no thought in them. This was the undue influence of first Hume in the 18th century and then William James in the uh, early, you know, late 19th, early 20th centuries made people think that, that investigating the thought content of an emotion like grief or an emotion like anger was just silly and that emotions just were identified by the way they feel. Now, I think that's just not adequate to human experience in any time or place and that therefore it, it's very helpful and it helps us kind of recover the complexity of the topic to return to Aristotle and even more to the Greek and Roman Stoics. But, you know, if I thought they didn't offer insight, I wouldn't turn to them. I would just say, well, let's move on. And on some topics like global justice, <laughs> I think Aristotle offers nothing. Uh, the Stoics do actually offer something, so I would still um, think about them. But, you know, the point is I, I turn to them because they're good, not because they're ours, uh, and also because they're part of my own biography. But I turn to the places where they're good. So why are they good? Because they think, and here I'll focus on the Stoics, although Aristotle has a similar view, that emotions are complicated attitudes of both mind and body toward things out there in the world that are very important to you, but that you don't fully control. And they involve thought about those precious objects. So fear, for example, involves the thought that there are things out there that are important for your flourishing and that they're threatened and you can't fully ward off the threat. Grief, which I talk about a lot in my book, Upheavals of Thought, involves the thought that there are people or things that are enormously important for your life and that they've been lost. I mean, so I talk a lot about the grief at the death of a parent, which I think is a good case to think about for all of us, because pretty much everyone who reads that book, I hope, has experienced something like that. So I start there in order to say, let's think about what it really feels like to experience the death of a parent. Well, it's not just a tummy ache. It's actually a set of quite lacerating thoughts, like the most important person in my life is gone, and I'll never see that person again. So so the, that's where the Stoics and Aristotle are great, that they take apart the thoughts. So now let's turn to anger. I think they're, they're all important, and I start with Aristotle just because his definition influenced all the subsequent definitions, and so everything else is... In, in the whole Western tradition, they kind of start from Aristotle's definition of anger. So he says that anger has a number of elements. The first element is the thought that a damage has occurred and that it's very important and that's done to people or things that you really care about. It might be you, it might be your friends, it might be your country, whatever. But something that you think is very important. Second element is that the damage was inflicted wrongfully. In other words, it wasn't just accident, and it probably wasn't even mere carelessness, but it was wrongfully. It was something culpable. So we have importance, we have culpability, and then we have, and here's where the problem begins, right. the hopeful part of anger, because Aristotle says that anger is painful, but it's also pleasant. Because he says, and it also involves the pleasant thought that you can pay back the person who inflicted the damage. Now, initially, we might think, well, wait a minute. 
is that necessary for anger? Uh, but, well, one thing we notice is that every philosopher who defines anger subsequently to Aristotle in the Western tradition includes that element as a conceptual part of what anger is, this wish for payback. And then, uh, since I do think cross-cultural study is very important, we find out that in Buddhist philosophy, that's regarded as a conceptual part of what anger is. That's one of the problems they have with it. In Hindu philosophy and in modern Indian thought, Gandhi defined anger very carefully, and he thought that the wish for payback was a part of what anger is. So it's not just an accident of the Western tradition. And then I go on in the book, and I try to consider various cases, and I suggest that Basically, our intuitions agree with this. If a person just had pain at the thought of a damage, and it was a special kind of pain because you thought it was a wrongful damage, but you didn't have this retributive wish, it wouldn't really be anger. It would be a special kind of grief or pain. And or anguish or something. Anguish, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so so that's where I get started. And I say, well, you know, that payback wish, let's look at that. The wish to return pain for pain. Now, of course, it needn't be the wish to go out like Orestes and take revenge yourself. You might just wish that the law would do it. Or, as Gandhi points out, you might think it would be done by God. The wish for divine justice. And, of course, Christian thought is full of that idea. Dante's Inferno is a, is a working out of that thought in cosmic terms. All the bad people are getting the punishment that they deserve in different ways. So, um, and then I think sometimes we just wish that the bad person's life would somehow or other go badly. Like people who get divorced, you kind of think, oh, that betraying spouse. I hope that second marriage turns out to be a dismal failure. And, you know, that's very human. We do have that wish. And even if we're civilized enough not to want to inflict the damage ourselves, or even if we don't do it through punitive litigation, as I fear is all too common in real life, we still kind of harbor that wish. I hope it turns out really bad. Or, you know, I hope the person who beat me out for that philosophy job turns out to be a failure, and I turn out to be much better. So we, we are, um, you know, we have these payback wishes. Now, what about those wishes? Well, the fact is that they are idle. They do no good, because wishing harm to the perpetrator does not actually help to restore the thing that was damaged. If you inflict harm on the person who took your job or the job that you think was yours. And, let, and some people, of course, do that. They go around writing bad reviews of their enemies' books and so on. But, of course, it doesn't make your work any better than it was before or correct whatever flaws that person or the hiring department had found in it uh, when we think about crime. Of course, a lot of bereaved people, let's say their child has been killed, they do believe that getting the death penalty for the murderer would somehow bring them closure, would bring back somehow the one who died. But of course it doesn't. It just stops them from getting on with their life. It does not restore the one who was lost and so on. Now, of course, punishment may have uses. Sometimes it does social good because it deters that person from harming somebody else. It deters other people from harming in the same way. And it may reform the person who did the harm. But that's a different point. The point is that the payback by itself, it's just futile thinking about cosmic balance, which I think probably has an evolutionary origin. It's very archaic, but it's empty. And it really does no good. When we get to the political context, I think we'll see that, but I won't get there yet. Um, so let me let me just so that's one horn we might say of what the central sort of critique of anger yeah. that you yeah. develop in the book is sort of takes the form of a dilemma right yeah. um so we've got on one horn the charge that anger and at least the garden varieties that we're f most familiar with um 
has sort of behind it a kind of, at some point in the book you call it a fantasy uh, for cosmic balance or the restoration of some cosmic balance or just payback. And so that kind of anger is actually based on something incoherent um, Mm -hmm. and confused. And then the other horn, though, is about status. Yeah. Okay, so let me talk about that. It's actually, I mean, I do present it as two horns, but that's a little misleading because it's kind of a sub-variety of the payback. Uh, um, Aristotle actually says that what anger is a response to is not just any and every damage, but to the kind that he calls a down ranking, because he lived in an honor culture where everyone was obsessed with status. And so, although subsequent people who write about anger in the tradition reject the narrowness of his definition and they think there are other kinds of damage that one might be worried about, they admit that this is one kind. So let's think about the kind where the damage consists in a down ranking. That is, you're lowered in the relative social hierarchy. Now, of course, many societies think that's a central issue, and it is not just those that we think are far away in the Middle East that we call honor cultures, but our own society is terribly like this. I've just been writing something about the musical Hamilton, which I think is so great. Uh, But, you know, that one emphasizes the fact that Hamilton, Burr, all the American founders were obsessed with honor and status. That's what dueling was about. It was about establishing your relative position in the hierarchy of people. Well, I want to say that in that case, where it's all about not just status, but relative status, then that's the one case where the payback really does get you what you want, because by pushing the offender relatively lower, you automatically push yourself relatively higher. And if that's all you care about, well, you don't need to worry that the real larger issues have not been resolved. But then what I want to say there is, That's a terrible way of looking at life. And I think what Miranda is so brilliant at in Hamilton is that he tries to show that. And I think he's deliberately trying to show it to American young people because that honor culture is the culture of street gangs. It's the culture of uh, also elite youth who are trying to get into the University of Chicago. And so it's, you know, we're hooked on relative status. And that's a, a cancer in our democracy. Because what really we should be doing is thinking about what what's really valuable in life. What should we create? And in the musical, George Washington teaches Alexander Hamilton that difference. He says that dying is easy. Living is hard. That is to think about what's really worthwhile and then to try to create that is what you should Hamilton should really be doing. And then, of course, Hamilton tries to understand that distinction between worthwhile ambition and mere striving for status. And Burr is the one who never gets it. So (laughs) Burr is always striving to be the insider in the room where it happens. And and he never gets the fact that, that that's barren because there's no worthwhile goal that he's creating. And so so I want to say, yeah, if you take that road, you might get what you want. And we note that Burr lived a long life and he ended up a pretty happy man. I mean, he was happy with what he had gotten. He had killed his enemy. But, you know, history does not judge him kindly because he did not create. He did not do anything of worth. So I think that's what um, Miranda quite uh, brilliantly shows us. And let's hope that his lesson is taken on board by young people who let's hope they can afford the tickets to see. <laughs> well, that's the that looks like a real problem. <laughs> well, our university has bought up a lot of tickets for the Chicago production. So what I'm actually doing is writing a lecture to give to the people before they have that public lottery. And, and so it'll be fun. And I, I do hope that more and more everyone gets to see it. Well, that's fantastic. So we've got a kind of incoherent uh, version of anger, which is the um, cosmic justice payback version. We've got a coherent but morally deeply troubling and pernicious version, which uh, is about downranking and reestablishing um, a, a proper ranking for oneself. Then we have a, a, a variety of anger that you're you're ready to endorse, uh, which is a temporary 
kind of anger um, that you call transitional anger or transition anger. Uh, can you tell us a bit about about that? Okay, well, let me take one step back because I sure. say when you're gripped by anger, there's a third option open to you rather than to take the road of payback or the road of status, and that is a path that I call the transition, mm. which means to turn to the future and just think what is the best course for me, what would produce the most good for my life, for society, or whatever. And I illustrate this by talking about Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, where he turns his audience from the corrosiveness of anger at the past to hope and constructive work for the future. So that's what I mean by the transition. Now, then I say, and there's a kind of anger that's like that's associated with that that might be already poised at that moment of change, which is a kind of anger that simply says how outrageous this is. Something must be done about that. Now, that is free of the payback, which it's already pointed forward, but it's still anger in the sense that it's focused on the wrong. So it's kind of a borderline case of anger, I think. But I think we can understand this by thinking of the anger that a lot of parents feel toward our very young children, that typically we, we do think the child has done something wrong and it might be harmful and it certainly might be outrageous. But at the same time, we're not thinking, oh, how can I pay that child back for the insult or whatever? We, we really think, what shall I do that would improve the child's life in the future? Something should be done about that, but of course not payback, but improvement, something that sets the course on a better track. So I think that's common in relations to one's own children. It's much less common, unfortunately, in relations to people that one doesn't know. The spirit of payback is um, ubiquitous in society, but we can identify this, this good variety by thinking about parents and children. Some people call this indignation, and that's okay with me, except that I think the ordinary word indignation is used very loosely, and sometimes it does incorporate a payback wish, so I prefer this technical term, transition hyphen anger. Right, and I guess um, for the philosophers, indignation also is part of um, a Strassonian view that you are opposed to, right? Well, yes. And, yeah. I mean, it was. I was thinking of the way Jean Hampton uses the word indignation, right. and she does not um, have any of the views I'm objecting to. Her views are very close to mine, but it's also perfectly clear that her use is quasi-technical, and that, yes, I mean, because of Strawson and all the Strawsonians and so on, you, you don't want to just rely on the connotations of the word. Right. All right. Um, well, picking up then on on, an, on another topic in which Gene Hampton wrote that you are interested in, uh, which is the second word in the title of your book, um, forgiveness. So I take it it's a common view among philosophers and not only philosophers that anger and forgiveness are intimately related and that forgiveness is conceptually tied to the overcoming of anger or to the dissolution of anger or to the resolving of anger. Once we see the futility uh, of, of anger and at least its most common varieties, non-transitional varieties, um, how are we to understand forgiveness? You have a nice chapter oh, uh, on yeah. this. Well, I think you've already said it. That is to say, <laughs> if, if we agree, which I think the Christian and Jewish traditions largely do, and Charles Griswold's excellent detailed philosophical account also does, that it is about the waving of anger and the resolution of, of anger, then the first thing to say is, well, you shouldn't have been angry in the first place. If you had thought ahead of time about how futile and pernicious anger is, then you wouldn't be in that place, you'd be in a different place where you wouldn't need to manage those corrosive emotions. You still would have to think about how to deal with wrongdoing and the wrongdoer, but that would be a different problem. But then I want to say that, as Griswold emphasizes, the classic form of forgiveness in the Christian tradition, in the Jewish tradition, but not entirely in the Gospels, so I'll get to that in a minute, uh, is a transactional one. That is to say, I will waive anger under the following conditions. The wrongdoer has to come before me, 
has to abase themselves to some extent, has to say, confess, say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and here are reasons for thinking I'm not going to do it again. And that's all over the place in religious texts. It's laid out at great length in Maimonides, and it appears in the Gospels. It becomes a big deal in the organized church, of course, with rituals of confession and absolution. And I talk a lot about the Dies Irae poem with the mm -hmm. contrite person quailing in fear. Well, we could argue about whether that's a good attitude to have toward an omnipotent God. It isn't my attitude toward God, certainly. And I, I think that idea of abasing yourself and quailing in fear is, is not the right way to think about relations between human and God. But, but I put that to one side in the book. And I think about human and human. And I do think that there is something quite problematic about the idea that, let's say, you're betraying spouse comes before you and they have to, in order for you to waive your just anger, they have to grovel and they have to make all sorts of protestations. We see this every day on TV where some politician has to do that and walk through these rituals of confession and contrition. But I think that we can see in it a covered form of anger and retribution that the, the person who's in the right says, oh, yeah, I'll waive my anger only if you engage in these somewhat humiliating rituals. So that transactional form, I think, is deeply problematic and could even be seen as a disguised form of retribution. Now, then, in the Gospels, we also have unconditional forgiveness. And that's obviously a lot better. And Jesus often does just does say, you know, forgive those who have sinned against you. That's better, but it still has the problem that we imagine that you were already quite angry and that that was okay. So then I still think that that might be rather problematic. And it, it still may contain the thought, oh, I'm the superior one. And in fact, in one passage in Paul, we get the idea that by forgiving unconditionally, you heap coals of fire on your head. And I think that's, uh, that's all too easy for that to happen. So what I favor is actually unconditional love and generosity. And that's plentiful in the Gospels. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And in the parable of the prodigal son, we see it worked out because that father does not know whether the son is going to confess or apologize. He has no idea. He just sees him coming afar off, and his emotions are very intense. And he runs to embrace him. And he loves him unconditionally before he has the conversation that then they later have about what the son has done wrong and what he can do to mend his life. And I think that is the right way to be toward other people. Uh, we'll start with the generosity, then we'll figure out what to do about wrongdoing later. And I do believe, and we'll talk about this in a bit, I'm sure, that in politics, that's a very valuable attitude to have and much more valuable than the, the forgiveness attitude. So, so I guess the word forgiveness I'm suspicious of, and I prefer generosity and unconditional love. Great. Um, so let's, um, it, as the book progresses then, you take up the topic of anger and related uh, phenomena in three different realms or different realms. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the three realms and then we'll get into how your analysis works within, uh, within them? Okay, sure. So the first realm is intimate personal relations, which have some unique features because they involve a kind of deep trust and therefore the wrong of a betrayal is especially harmful to your well-being. And so I look at that and then I look at what I call the middle realm, that is it's neither political nor deeply personal. The people you meet every day in stores or repairmen or people you run into on airlines. And then there's a special sub-department of that that is the workplace, your colleagues, because that's kind of in, in between the intimate and the middle, uh, because you have to work with them for a long time, and so there has to be some trust, but at the same time, you, you, don't, you haven't chosen them because you love them, or, so they're more like strangers, too. And then, finally, there's the political realm, and I divide that into two parts. There's the ordinary realm of 
everyday justice, where we have to have a criminal law system and so forth. And then there's the realm of revolutionary justice, where we're trying to establish a decent society after great wrongdoing. So those are the realms. Great. Can we can we talk a little bit more specifically about the middle realm? It does seem like culturally, in the States at least, the addiction maybe we could call it to anger seems to run rampant in these contexts where we are every day interacting with people who are not intimates. They're not we're not interacting purely in our political roles as citizens. These are just people we run into on the bus and or on the subway. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your account uh, of, of anger and its overcoming uh, uh, in, in, in those contexts? Well, see, for me, what makes this quite different from the intimate realm right. is that here, I think, basically, the Stoics are correct. Now, the Stoics thought that you should get rid not only of anger, but also of grief, of fear, of passionate love, of all the deeper emotions, because they thought that none of these people and things outside yourself that you don't control are worth getting really, really upset about. The only thing that is really worthwhile is your own will and your own virtue. Well, in the intimate realm, you know, I don't agree with that at all. While I don't like anger and I repudiate it, I think, you know, grief is, of course, a, it's the flip side of deep love. You couldn't love somebody without being grieved if you if they die or if you lose them in some other way. And fear, therefore, is always an important part of life. Fear for the safety and the life of the people you love and so forth. So I'm validating grief and fear. And, of course, they're a very big part of my life and I think of any decent person's life because you can't live well without loving people. So I'm not a stoic. However, in the middle realm, I, I think they're right. These are things that are not just not worth getting upset about. You know, how your Comcast repairman proves <laughs> to be incompetent to a tremendous extent. Uh, how the person is driving badly and cutting you off in traffic. And my particular bugbear is like, because I travel a lot, people on airplanes. Because, you know, that's a kind of forced intimacy. You got to right. sit next to them sometimes for 15 hours, but you did not choose them. You probably don't like them, and they have all sorts of irritating characteristics. I'm particularly averse to people who are kind of sexist without knowing it and ageist without knowing it. They grab my suitcase, which I'm triumphantly putting into the overhead rack because I'm proud of doing a lot of upper body weight training. And they grab it from me and they say, oh, I'll help you. And, you know, they're being very condescending, but they don't even know it. So I myself get very upset. And I'm sure my if I had a blood pressure cuff, I would find my blood pressure has gone up at that point. But, you know, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. And we should add that in the book you tell you, you tell several of these stories about flights. Oh, uh, I do. And uh, I have to say, and... I mean, I just taught a seminar on this book in Germany, and I have to say that several of the stories contain people who um, – who were German, and, and I described their irritating <laughs> traits in a rather um, pejorative way, I'm afraid. <laughs> so my, my German students were a little bit uh, quailing uh, in front of my critique of the, there's a kind of self-righteousness with which German men will say, oh, but I'm afraid you will injure your neck or something. And and so I do make fun of that, and I probably shouldn't do it, but anyway, uh, but, but anyway. Um, yeah, I, I, I do. I'm very prone to this kind of anger. But the truth is, it's just not worth it. Now, of course, because it's not worth it, I guess the problem is it's also not worth working on it all the time. If I really wanted to, I could do stoic meditative exercises and I would probably get on top of my inclination to that kind of anger. But, you know, I'm always thinking, well, I have more important things to do. And therefore, I don't get on top of this problem. But I do feel that it, you're right. It's a terrible problem in society. Now, I must say that I think a lot of the anger that we see in American political life, and of course, this book had no connection to the current presidential campaign. It was written mostly in 2013-14. 
But there's a lot of relevant thoughts. People have said, have invited me to talk about its relevance to the campaign, and I'm happy to do that. But, you know, I think the anger that I see white men in America experiencing is not just the kind that's about trivial things. And it's not middle realm. It's really deeper than that. It's about the deprivation of opportunities and prospects, the deprivation of health, livelihood. I mean, we know that white men in America have suddenly a really low health status that has plummeted their longevity, their tendency to be addicted to prescription drugs. All of these things are really serious problems. So I don't consider that to be just the middle realm. I do think that's about serious issues that of a political nature and that would therefore have to be addressed by intelligent public policy. So I still think the anger that says, you know, we feel aggrieved and we have our prospects have diminished so let's blame it on the immigrants let's blame it on women and so that's foolish and empty the payback is empty but the problem is serious so it's not just a middle realm thing so the middle realm is about the things like the comcast repairman the um, driving and traffic and all the traffic jams and so on that are really too trivial to be worth getting upset about so why don't we then sort of transition to the political? So the, the account is that in the in the, the realm of intimate relationships, we ought not to be stoics because there's some moral value, uh, maybe moral necessity in the kinds of attachments that breed grief and gratitude and all of the um, emotional responses that stoics sought to dispel. Uh, we can still be opposed to anger in that intimate realm, but uh, it can't be devoid of emotional uh, attachments more generally. There's the middle realm where you want to endorse the stoic view that these are slights that are inconsequential or that we shouldn't be emotionally invested. It's like uh, Epictetus and the broken, the broken jar. But then there's the political uh, realm and you say that you've got a, a division between two different regions within that realm. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the two regions and then how your account works? Well, the one region, of course, they tend to be more continuous than what I right. say, because uh, uh, so the first region just presupposes that basic social institutions are not so bad. They might need reform, but they don't need total replacement. And then asks, how do we deal with wrongdoing within that realm? Now there, the first point I want to make is that the philosophical debate has been much too narrow because it's all about punishment. I'm about to go to a conference in Hong Kong. Uh, which, of course, is very influenced by the Anglo-American tradition of the justification of punishment. But that's a narrow topic. It says wrongdoing has already occurred, so what do we do now? And then we have debates between retributivists and utilitarians. But the point that both the goddess Athena long ago and Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century make is that we, we can't wait around for that. We should start when children are born, and we should ask, what should a decent society do to bring up a child who would not become a criminal in the first place? And so Bentham says, you know, you instead of just whapping them and throwing them in these prisons when they commit a crime, we have to think about nutrition, about education, about employment, about all the ingredients that go to making a person who becomes a law-abiding citizen. And I fear that modern societies are not doing that enough. And, uh, of course, it's very hard to do that, so they fall back on the easier stratagem of retributive mass incarceration, as though that would solve the crime problem. But I fear that there's something more sinister going on in the U.S. addiction to incarceration. If you think about a family, of course, no parent would wait around till the child had committed a horrible crime and then give the child hard treatment. They would view that as a terrible failure of their own role as parents because they should have brought up a child who, and barring a rare psychopath who might be genetically predisposed to crime, but in most cases, the good, loving parenting will produce a different result. 
Now, I think that's true in society, but why do people think it isn't? I think it's because of racism. I think at some level, people still believe that African Americans are a criminal class by nature and that there's nothing you can do to make them stop being criminals. So why should we spend money on nutrition, on pre-K education, on housing, on employment? No, just throw the book at them throw them in jail. And of course, there are plenty of uh, people, including our own Senator uh, Mark Kirk, who pretends now to be a liberal because he's running uh, against Trump to some extent. He runs as a, an anti-Trump Republican. But he said that the best way to solve the problem of gang crime was to put all gang members in jail, whether they had committed a crime or not. So, you know, that's racism. And, uh, of course, he can't get off the hook for that, even though he now appears in moderate clothing. So I think the real problem with our society is we don't all love our fellow citizens. In a society like some smaller European countries, I've just been in Finland recently, where people do identify with one another as family, and they think that we're all part of the same family, they would never think we don't care about social safety net, and then we'll just throw everyone in jail. The U.S. is different. We're not a face-to-face -face society, and that poses great challenges. We have to figure out how we can learn to feel like a family, how we can learn to see one another's fate in everyone else's fate. And our greatest leaders, such as Lincoln and FDR and Martin Luther King Jr., have used rhetorical stratagems to try to show that. But, you know, it's very, very hard. And so I think that's the reason why the debate has become narrowed down to a debate about punishment. But, okay, so the larger problem we really ought to undertake. But still, there will be some crime. And then I just want to say there, what we should be thinking about is the same thing that, that the goddess Athena thought. That is, looking forward, how can punishment promote overall social welfare? Now, of course, there are lots of philosophical objections against utilitarian theories of punishment, like they could justify punishing the innocent and so on. So let me <clears throat> head that off by saying that my form of consequentialism includes the protection of human dignity and respect for human dignity as a central pillar, and therefore a punishment of the innocent would not show respect for the equal human dignity of persons. And so, so I have a lot to say about why my particular form of consequentialism does not have the bad tendencies imputed to utilitarianism. It's more like Bill than like Bentham, if you will. And uh, so I talk about that a lot. And then I look at various parts of our current criminal justice system and ask how they might be changed with this in mind. I mean, there are a lot of things we could talk about, but one of them would be the uh, tendency, which is increasing now, to substitute drug treatment and therapy for harsh punishment of nonviolent offenses. And of course, we see that now that's catching on. But I'm very suspicious because it's only when so many whites are the ones who have drug offenses and prescription drug addiction is largely a white offense. And all of a sudden, people think, oh, no, we don't want to throw those people in jail. We want to, we want to treat them. Well, okay, we should have thought that long before. We should be thinking much more about how juvenile justice can be reintegrative and, and, and ameliorative rather than punitive. And then I, I talk a lot about victim impact statements. We should not build into the process of criminal trials an invitation to retributive outcries from victims. Uh, so anyway, those are some of the things I talk about in that section of the book. Great. Can we um, then move to the second part that you discuss of the political realm, which is the revolutionary justice part? And here your touchstones are not only Martin Luther King, but um, Gandhi and Nelson Mandela. Uh, can you tell us um, what the appropriate, from your point of view, uh, stance is towards sort of really debilitating systematic social injustice? Yeah. Now, of course, it's very common to think that you can't get rid of terribly, in, deeply rooted injustice without the spirit of anger. Right. Now, here, though, we have to say those three are successful leaders of noble, highly successful revolutionary movements, all of which were profoundly committed 
to non-anger. Now notice that I don't say non-violence. Gandhi was also in favor of total non-violence. He didn't even want to fight against Hitler if Hitler invaded through Burma. I'm not a pacifist, uh, nor was King really. Well, King uh, was against the Vietnam War, but he said very clearly that he wasn't a total pacifist. And um, Mandela, of course, turned from nonviolence to a strategic use of violence when nonviolence had not succeeded. So I think violence in self-defense is permissible, and I think there are times when you may need to do that. But I'm talking about the spirit behind it, and that the spirit behind it should be the spirit of future hope and work and not the retributive spirit. Now, it turns out that some of them think that ordinary people may at some point need anger to bring them to the revolutionary movement. And King does say things that go in that direction because he thinks, look, um, what is it that makes people get out of their despair and their inactivity? Maybe their anger has some limited use, and I'm willing to grant that. But King immediately says that once they get to his movement, they have to first undergo what he calls self-purification. That means they get rid of the retributive spirit, and they learn to focus on work, hope, and love. Now, he immediately says that he doesn't mean you have to like the people. You don't have to want to live with them. You certainly don't have to have a romantic feeling about them. By love, he means a spirit that wills good for the other party and that is willing to cooperate with them in building, as he says, the beautiful society, a place where men and women can live together. So that's the spirit, I think, that a successful revolutionary movement needs. And Mandela understood this, he says, through 27 years of very serious meditation on his own retributive wishes when he was in prison on Robben Island. We now know that he actually had a text of Marcus Aurelius's meditations that had been smuggled in, and it was obviously very useful in making him think about anger. But we notice that Mandela when he's confronted with people who have done terrible things, does not ask, how shall I pay them back? Even though that would be very easy to do, and you can see that his, his colleagues in the ANC often did think that way, he thinks instead, how shall I produce future cooperation and friendship? Think of the famous case of the rugby team, which the movie Invictus marvelously dramatizes with Morgan Freeman as Mandela. I mean, he could have said, oh, rugby is a white sport. It's racist, so we'll pay those racists back by decertifying rugby as a national sport. But no, he understood that sports are really important for nation building. So what we need to do is to win them over and in the process make it far less of an all-white sport. So that's what the movie rightly depicts. And uh, so that's what Mandela was all about. He, Whenever he saw a racist or former racist, his first thought is, how can I make a friend? How can I make somebody who will actually cooperate with me in the movement? Um, after his death, I happened to be watching CNN International from someplace in Europe, and they, they have much more extensive news coverage, I'm afraid, than U.S. does. Uh, and, and so they were interviewing various people. But one was a police captain, white Afrikaner police captain, who was remembering how in 1994 he had been a young police recruit and he had watched the presidential procession and he was kind of expecting, you know, now's the time for payback. All, all of the white police force is going to get some sort of demotion or punishment. Mandela got down from his presidential car. He shook the hands of all the young police recruits and he says, you know, our safety depends on you. And this man was crying as he remembered that. I mean, tears rolling down the face of this police captain. And he just was so moved by the gesture of generosity and the spirit, not of, not of forgiveness, but of generous affection and friendship that Mandela showed. So, so that's what I think true nation building needs. And of course, uh, it's, it's very hard for that spirit to survive in politics today. Excellent. 
Well, Martha, you've, you've been very generous with your time, and uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you about Anger and Forgiveness, your book. Last question, what's next? Well, of course, um, I, I always do work on more than one thing, but right. um, I actually am writing a book on aging with my colleague Saul Levmore, who's a legal economist. It's a book of essays on different topics that, I mean, I think most books on aging think of aging as a time of anxiety, pain, and death. But after all, if it begins in the 60s, as most people think, it could be a 30-year span of life in which there are lots of other questions to answer, like what becomes of friendship, what becomes of work, should we have compulsory retirement or not, should we urge people who are aging to live along with other aging people in retirement communities, or should we favor intergenerational communities? So there are all sorts of interesting questions that are constructive, that are not all about pain and death, but about how to flourish in a complicated time of life. And so that's what our book is about. It's called Aging Thoughtfully, and it has responsive essays by the two of us. We differ in style, we differ in views, and so on. So it's partly about the fun of arguing, and the fun of having a, a friend at this time of life. So, yeah, I mean, so we're both in our 60s, and like the characters in, see, Cicero wrote his great work on aging, and I think it's the only good work on aging in the philosophical tradition of the West, uh, called De Senectute. He wrote it when he and his best friend Atticus were in their 60s, and he says, well, we're not really old yet, but we'd better look ahead and see what's coming. And so in the dialogue, he, he imagines as his interlocutor someone who's 83, and this person is telling what that time of life is really like. So that's what Saul and I are doing. We're looking ahead and trying to ask these uh, questions and doing it as, as Cicero tries to do with friendship and um, and delight. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, I look forward to that and I look forward to reading it. Are there, just a quick question. Do you think there are distinctive kinds of questions about justice that arise particularly in the cases of aging people? Well, I think that there are, but we have to be very careful because they're not as distinctive as some people think. Right. I mean, people accept without a missing a beat the heinous idea of compulsory retirement, which, I mean, I'm not talking about people in the U.S. Fortunately, I think the AARP has moved us beyond that. But in every other place where I go, my friends have retired, and they believe that this is fair. They believe that society is right. They've internalized what I would call adaptive preferences with respect to this. And in India, in Finland, in Germany, they're all retired. But I think, you know, equality issues are really not recognized because if people said, oh, well, it's very expensive to include blacks on a basis of equality in the workplace, so we better keep them out. Well, we know how far that argument would get. Or actually, of course, with the Trump campaign, it's really what it's all about, I'm afraid. But, uh, but, uh, but uh, people of reason do not accept that argument. <laughs> when it was said, including children with disabilities on a basis of equality in the classroom, or including adults with disabilities on a basis of equality in the workplace, even though it means um, opening the door to expensive accommodations and so on, people said, well, you know, that's required by justice. And if it's required by justice, the idea that it's rather expensive does not cut any ice. Courts have said that in the case of disability. So why is it that with age, they don't even think about that? They think, well, of course it's fair that we should step down, give the jobs to other people. So I want to say that we don't recognize the issue of justice where it exists. It does have a slightly different shape because we want to permit retirement and we want to support pensions while also permitting, I say, continued work on behalf of people who want to work. And, of course, there are other things that we have to think about. Issues of, um, again, what kind of community we want, what kind of uh, isolation or integration we want. So there are distinctive issues, but, but they're not all as distinctive as uh, people sometimes think, because I think pe aging is the one area of stigma and prejudice where the prejudice is just 
looked like the way things are by nature. As Mill uh, said about women, it was, right. is there any form of domination that did not appear natural to the people who exercise it? And I want to say this to people who exercise age discrimination. It looks natural to force people to stop working, but it's a form of do illegal um, domination. And I'm glad it's illegal in the U.S. and it should be illegal elsewhere, too. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, again, I look forward to, to reading that. But for now, let me thank you once again, Martha, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy to talk about your new book, Anger and Forgiveness, Resentment, Generosity, Justice. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks so much, Bob. This was great. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Martha Nussbaum of the University of Chicago. We were talking about her new book, Anger and Forgiveness, Resentment, Generosity, Justice, which is now available from Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.